My name is Dave Foster. I'm a pastor here at Parkview Church. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning or you're online and you're just tuning in, we want to say welcome. It's just love when we get to this time of the year. But for people visiting church for the first time, it can be just a little bit on the uh, kind of quizzical side, like, what is this about? Why do we do what we do? And Easter is one of those holidays that people come out in droves to see what the story is of Christ and why we celebrate it. Uh, when I was a kid, we didn't really go to church. We didn't have much to do with church. But uh, I remember just kind of for the first time coming into range of a church, uh, getting an opportunity to see the people that come and go, uh, my brother and I were talking on the phone last night, he lives in Des Moines, and we were talking about our first experience in church. And it's probably not like what you're thinking of, but uh, we were in a tree up in the corner of the parking lot of the local church in our neighborhood, Center Baptist Church. And uh, we just that was kind of our territory. And our favorite thing to do was eat those waxy candies, you know, and suck the juice out of them. And then we would bomb cars as they rode, you know, drove below the tree. And we just thought that was a lot of fun. But one day, uh, we noticed coming out of the building over there of the church were a bunch of kids. And to our excitement, they were carrying candy, lots of candy. Like, where did they get this candy? So we believed that the church was well within two blocks of our neighborhood guys' range. They were on our territory. So we felt it was incumbent upon us to go down there and relieve them as much of that candy as we could. And so we just started knocking kids over and grabbing stuff. And pretty soon a guy comes out, a young man, probably was in college now that I look back on it. And he was like, why don't you guys uh, quit doing that and come on in? We got plenty of stuff, plenty of candy for you. And for my brother, that was the first time he ever went into a church was to hear what I'm sure was a vacation Bible school type format. Uh, I, I got a bag of M&Ms and then promptly left, not to return until I was in high school, but it was a positive experience. But no matter where you're at today in your experience of coming to church, church, Christianity can seem a little different. One of the reasons is because we have a symbol on most Christian church's walls, right? It's a, a symbol of death. And we think, wow, churches are supposed to be all about life. But we have this symbol of death. Almost every church has this symbol somewhere in the front, typically behind the pulpit, as we do, or on the front of the pulpit. If you go to a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran church, they may see a representation of a suffering man uh, for everyone to see and to stare at. Uh, most of us understand that this symbol is actually the cross, right? My only experience with the cross in my day was from vampire movies, right? Somebody was holding a cross out and it was supposed to be a good thing. It kept away evil. But why would it keep away evil? What is it about a cross? If I understood it right, as time went on, it's something that uh, God was killed upon. And this is something worth celebrating, something worth adorning your church for. Um, it's a machine, actually, from ancient times designed to kill after hours and hours of suffering and anguish for the poor criminal that was affixed to it. 
why then do we get all dressed up, comb our hair, right? Stop eating chocolate eggs and bunnies and just to come rushing to church to celebrate this cross? Well, for one thing, uh, many of us are attracted to church because we have questions, questions that the rest of our life doesn't seem to answer. Uh, questions about, is there life after death? Is there something more than just going to work every day and my family, which is so messed up and so forth? Actually, a lot of us are just afraid of death, and we're trying to find answers to those kind of questions. Death is a powerful emotion in life. We know that death brings with it a cessation of all reality, at least as far as we know it. It can come at the end of a period of suffering and sickness, which in some cases death may be welcomed. It can come suddenly, unexpectedly, like after an accident or perhaps an intentional act of war or crime. Uh, in any case, most of us do not like to think about death. Even now that as I'm talking about, some of you are getting very uncomfortable with it. Like, man, I, that's just too close to home. But yet we as a church and all Christians around the world we have that symbol, right? What is that about? Well, in American society, we'll do just about anything not to have to focus on death and think about what may be coming, right? We'll, we'll exercise, well, maybe not during COVID pandemic, uh, obviously. <clears throat> we'll try and eat a healthy diet. Uh, we'll take any number of medical uh, procedures, pharmaceutical remedies, anything to put off the reality that this life that we're living is not going to last forever. There's going to come a time, if we're lucky, that we age and then we'll eventually cease to be. And that scares people. What is the point of that? And yet that's why people come to church. We're trying to get a handle on that. We're trying to understand that. Millions of people around the globe today are congregating in buildings with this display of torture and death prominently in the front, right? Poor saps. Why would they do that? Why are you doing that? Why are you here? Well, you could say it's just that the symbol of death that you're referring to, Pastor Dave, is really old and ancient, so no one really associates it in that way anymore. It's just a cross, right? And young people today, and they have been for years, decades, will even wear it as a necklace and put it someplace on their body. And I'll ask them, I said, you know you're wearing a cross? Tell me why you're wearing that cross. And they kind of look at you funny like, well, everybody wears a cross. You know, some will have it tattooed on their skin permanently, still without any understanding of why. Death, it's absolutely frightening for most of us. Unless you're here this morning and you're seeking the real reason why Christians gather, why we focus on this cross. Maybe because as you stare at it, you recognize something about it. If you went to Good Friday services this week, you could have heard Wade, our pastor, preach on uh, the story of death, the death of God that happened upon that cross. Christians believe that God died on a cross. What other world religion carries the symbol of their God's death? You see, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was impaled on that cross, right? He didn't go kicking and screaming. He didn't have 20 
men holding him down so as they hammered the spikes into his wrists and to his feet uh, to keep him there. He didn't require sedation in order to ease the pain so it would be able to be stood. In fact, he provoked, as we learned last week, the whole incident. We talked about the triumphal entry where he drew attention to himself as he was going to incite more or less a rebellion against the standard church experience and say, no, I am here. I am he. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm making my claim. And I know it's going to fly in the face of everything that this group of people do, these, these temple priests, the Sanhedrin, these Pharisees. In a sense, Jesus wanted to die. It says in the New Testament that his entire reason for coming is so that he could die. In any other cult or world religion, that would be obviously the end of the story. But not for us as Christians. You see, the rest of the story from Friday to Sunday, 2,000 years ago, we wind up on Easter. Hmm. Let's read what the Word says this morning. I'm going to start out in chapter 27, verse 59 of the book of Matthew, and we're going to see if we can answer that question. What, what was it that makes this cross so special, and what is beyond that cross? Well, in verse 57 of chapter 27, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So basically, we're in a cemetery, right? This is a place where people who are dead are buried. You know, they, we use a lot of different words for it, but that's essentially what's happening. Now we're going to jump to chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men." But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Besides being called Easter, this celebration that we do annually, I would argue that there is a far more accurate name, one that I prefer over Easter, called Resurrection Sunday. 
because that's truly the finishing part of the story of the cross, right? We start with the cross on Friday, we go to Sunday, and it's resurrection. We're not celebrating death, as one might think, when they see the cross adorning our church. We're actually celebrating life. So 2,000 years ago, it's Sunday morning. It's very, very early, perhaps even still dark. And a group of women are making their way to the tomb that we just read about, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He owned it. He's a rich man who at great expense had paid to have his family tomb carved out of solid rock. This would have taken some 500 man hours for someone to carve this, this tomb. Um, this was the custom, obviously, of rich people. Poor people couldn't afford this. Poor people were just thrown into a common grave, a pit more or less. But Joseph, he was wealthy, and it was his heart's desire to provide Jesus with a place for him, for his body. Except what we already know from our story is that Joseph was also a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, and he had petitioned the Roman governor, according to Scripture, the Roman governor of Palestine, his name was Pilate, to take down Jesus' body from the cross where he had suffered and prepare him and put him in this family tomb. Inside their tomb, they'd actually carved into the rock. There was a place for like almost like a bus bench where you could just have that bench sticking out and they would have put his body right on top of it. Joseph would have had his servants take down the cross beam, the, the, the patibulum of the cross, and take those spikes out of Jesus' body. Then Nicodemus, another Pharisee, uh, a rich follower of Jesus as well, brought burial spices, probably around 75 pounds of dry spice, including myrrh. Then they would have cleaned Jesus' body in preparation, wiping the sweat, uh, the blood, uh, possibly thorns away from him, putting it in clean white linen wrapped around him. And in the folds of that linen, they would have put this burial spice uh, just for the sake of preservation and, and odor, right? Then they would have carried Jesus to this tomb. Once inside, some of the men would have put myrrh on that little park bench, put Jesus's body upon it, and Jesus would have been ready for his internment. This all took place on Friday night. Um, there's a huge stone that rolls in front of the mouth of the tomb, possibly somewhere between 12 and 1,300 pounds. It either would have taken several men to move it or a couple of men with levers to get that to move back into place. And while all this is going on, the Bible tells us that the chief priests, the ones who had instigated this, this death march for Jesus, who had insisted that he be put upon the cross and had in fact exchanged Jesus for a known rebel by the name of Barabbas, they were at it again, and they're back in front of Pilate, begging to have guards placed in front of the tomb. And they asked if the Roman sentries uh, could be put there so that no one could come and steal the body because they had remembered that Jesus had predicted that he would rise again from the dead. And even though they didn't believe him, they wanted someone there to guard that tomb so no shenanigans could happen. But Pilate refused to have <clears throat> Roman soldiers <clears throat> excuse me, 
do this. And so just for the sake of helping out, he suggested that they use the temple guards, which were Jewish men who were in charge of security on Temple Mount. So the chief priests got the temple guards, put them in front. They sealed that tomb, probably with some combination of melted wax, perhaps ropes. We're not really sure what they did. Uh, that would ensure that nothing could have happened. You know, you can't put melted wax on there and then move that tomb stone and not have it noticeable. It would have cracked that wax. But it also acted in some way as an attractive uh, so that it, like super glue, in a sense, kept it in place, making it just that much more difficult to move. And then they agreed and they were paid to stand guard so that no one could come near them. All of this, again, is happening on Friday. But here we are, just like you. We're back on Sunday morning. Remember, as I said, it's very early. And according to the word, a group of women arrive at the tomb carrying vials of liquid perfume. They want to anoint the body of Jesus, which is still in the tomb. Uh, it had been in there for parts of three days, and this was a common practice. Perfuming the body was something that they did to, again, enhance the smell. They had the dry spice earlier. Now we have the liquid perfume. Uh, but they wondered, it says in Scripture, how are we going to move that big stone out of the way to get to the body of Christ? But just as we read, things are not the way they should have been. The guards were gone. The stone had already been rolled aside. Huh. Maybe they were at the wrong tomb. Friday had been a traumatic day, and it was nearly dark when Jesus' body was put in there. Perhaps they took a wrong turn somewhere, but they checked around, and they, they got their bearings, and no, they're in the right place. What could have scared the guards so much that they would have deserted their post? Have you ever seen an angel of the Lord? It says here that there was an earthquake. Now, earthquakes preceded and followed this weekend, Right? There was an earthquake when Jesus was crucified, and now there says there's another earthquake upon the resurrection. Earthquakes bookend these events. A.T. Robertson says, the earth which trembled with sorrow at the death of Christ, as it were leaped for joy at his resurrection. That would have been scary if you had been the guards. On top of that, the angel who appears has a, 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 an image, it says, like lightning. Now, we're not really sure what that means. Like, was it intense, bright white light? Did it give off, you know, some kind of static? Was it actually electrical? But whatever it was, it was frightening. And his clothing was white as snow. That would be enough for anyone to be afraid. No matter what the case, the guards had lit out of there. And the women unexpectedly had free access to the tomb. But when they looked inside, when they peeked inside... Nothing could have prepared them for what they saw, or rather, what they didn't see. In one account, there's an appearance of this angel. Uh, the guards see the angel. They're afraid. They shake. They're running off. Uh, they're like dead men. Uh, we don't know if they fainted in some cases or if it's just purely running. Um, but we see this kind of reaction from people every time they see an angel in the scriptures. But the women come in there, and they're accosted by an angel who says, what are you doing here? Who are you looking for? One of them says, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. And the definitive statement of Easter, a statement that now goes around the world every year at this time of the year, for the last 2,000 years, said, He is risen. He is not here. Later that morning, Mary Magdalene, one of the women, sees a gardener, what she thinks is a gardener, at the tomb. Wait, it may not be a gardener. He greets her as he has done a hundred times before. Mary. Just Mary. Instantly, almost by reflex, she responds in the Aramaic, the name that she most commonly addressed him by when they used to walk the paths of Galilee. Rabboni! She instantly knows that this gardener was Jesus. Is he so beaten, so crushed, so bruised and bloodied? Was he the last time that she had seen him? It took a moment for her eyes to adjust to the new reality of the resurrected Christ, but her ears did not deceive her. The truth of Easter morning is Mary running off saying, I have seen the Lord against all hope. So when we look at our four Gospels, We've got one or two angels in appearance. We have several groups of women possibly coming and going. But what do we know for sure about this event? Now, just let me challenge you this morning. This singular event, this resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, <clears throat> is arguably the single most important event ever in human history, right? Around the world, and for the last two millennium, people have paid special attention to this. Does it warrant that? Is it possible that that, help, that happened? Well, what are some events that happened here? No matter which of the gospel accounts you're reading, and there are four of them, but uh, what is going on here that we can agree on? Well, first of all, there's a group of women that come to the tomb near dawn, right? Mary Magdalene possibly arriving before the other ones. Secondly, Mary and the other women are met by angels one of whom announces Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus, even then, at that early time of the day, is no longer there. No one actually witnessed the resurrection. He's just gone. Let me say this. The earthquake happened and the angel came not to roll away the stone so that Jesus could leave, but he rolled away the stone so that the people, the, the women and the disciples, could look inside. Right? Jesus was gone. Thirdly, the women leave the garden with a mixture of fear and joy. They're frightened of the angels. They're frightened about what's happened. In a sense, they're beginning to think, hmm, something body? Uh, should we be concerned? But then the, the angels announce the truth of the event. Uh, Jesus is risen. He is risen. And joy begins to come into their hearts because they remembered the things that he had said to them when he was still with them and teaching that he would come back. At first unwilling to do anything or say anything, but then resolving to obey the angels, they leave and they head to the disciples. They're going to announce to the disciples what has happened. Magdalene uh, dashes on ahead of everyone else and she tells Peter and John, two of Jesus' most trusted men, about what has happened. Peter and John come running back, right? And they go to the tomb and they discover it to be empty. It says in John chapter 20, verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going towards the tomb. 
Both of them were running together. I can't imagine what was going on in their minds. Uh, this crazy Mary Magdalene, is she telling us the truth? Did somebody do something to desecrate his grave? Uh, because these guys had totally sold out to the idea that the mission they were on with Christ, that all of that work and effort they had done for the past three years, the miracles that they had performed, the demons that had been cast out, the people, the mass of people that had been fed, the hopes of a Messiah coming to throw off the Roman yoke of oppression from these people. It was over. He'd been killed. The story had gone all over the, the Jerusalem. The man who thought he was God had been hammered to a piece of wood and he had suffered greatly and he was dead. But now this woman is coming to us and telling us that he is missing from the tomb. So they run together, it says. But the other disciple, and John's always so humble, he never uses his own name. He's either the beloved disciple or the other disciple. But it means, but John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. They weren't unwound. It wasn't like somebody got up and said, well, let's just take all. It was just like it was laying there, still in the form that you could see of a body having once been there. And it says, but John did not go in. Now, eventually, John's going to go in there. And I love that part in that gospel reference. John goes into the tomb. He looks, and it says he believes. You say, how could a guy who had sold his whole life to follow Jesus in obedience still not believe in the ultimate message of the Messiah? Because it's never happened before. No one's ever been resurrected from the dead. Well, you can say, well, what, what about Lazarus? We talked a couple of weeks ago about Resurrection Saturday. If this is Resurrection Sunday, there was Resurrection Saturday when Lazarus came forth from the grave because Jesus got there. He had been sick, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, begged Jesus to raise Lazarus, their brother, and Jesus did that. Lazarus, come forth. But you know, he wasn't resurrected in the sense that Jesus is, Right? He's eventually going to die again. He's a mortal man in a mortal body. But Jesus is resurrected. This is different. Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb. She sees the angels. And then Jesus talks with her, as we've already read. Jesus meets the remaining women and confirms the orders to tell the disciples what they're seeing. This seems to be a, a necessary thing. Let's go tell the disciples what we've seen who we've seen. Uh, Jesus wants to reunite with them. During the afternoon on that same Sunday, Jesus appears to Peter individually in or near Jerusalem on the Sunday afternoon of the resurrection day. This won't be his last appearance, by the way. These appearances will go on and on for some 40 days after resurrection Sunday. Later in the day, Jesus appears to Cleopas and to a friend of his on the road to Emmaus, a small town near Jerusalem, they return to Jerusalem to tell the other 11 disciples what they have seen. And lastly, while Cleopas and his friend are in the upper room with the disciples, without Thomas, the doubter as we call him, they're behind locked doors and suddenly, without knocking, without anyone opening a door, Jesus appears to them. That's what the Word of God says. That's what everyone agrees to what has happened. Now, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to 
take it at face value. But let me tell you something. Most people, most scholars that read this agree that Jesus was alive. He was a real person who walked and talked and taught, that he ran afoul of the people who were in charge of the religious system of his days, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and that he was crucified in a Roman style of execution upon the cross, and that he was put into the tomb of a member of the Jewish aristocracy, Joseph of Arimathea, and that something happened that on Sunday morning his body was no longer there. You can dispute anything else you want, but those are the facts. Those are the facts. New Testament scholar Gary Habermas and others ardently believe that the resurrection is a step of faith based on historical fact. So what are some historical facts that we can hang our belief on this morning? Well, first of all, there's no doubt that Jesus died as the result of his crucifixion on Friday afternoon, that he was buried, that in the tomb, he was placed in a tomb, uh, and that it was found empty on Sunday morning, right? Remember, Jesus' burial was overseen by a member of the upper crust of Jewish society, and neither the women followers, nor Peter and John, nor the Jewish authorities doubted that the tomb was empty. Secondly, if the burial story is true, then people would have known exactly where his body should have been located. As the disciples began to preach, almost immediately the truth of the empty tomb, people could have gone and seen for themselves. Think about it. If the Jewish authorities had known where Jesus' body was and they had an ability to produce it, they would have. Because by the fact that Jesus is up and missing, at least at the minimum, makes it difficult for them to continue on uh, with their persecution and attacks upon a body of people called Christians. The story that the chief priests invented to make an excuse for how Jesus' body had gone uh, missing was necessary only if Jesus was actually not there. Thirdly, the Gospels agree that the tomb in which Jesus' body had been placed was discovered, hold on here, by women to be empty. If the disciples had made up this story of the empty tomb, they would have had Peter or some of the other 12 or 11 disciples uh, seeing Jesus walking to the tomb, finding out that it was empty, encountering an angel. Uh, women were not the preferred method, right? Uh, witnesses in a court of law in this day. Uh, they would not have been somebody that you would say, well, I know this to be true because Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary of Bethany, Mary the mother of, you know, so forth and so forth, uh, Joanna, uh, they all gave testimony. Well, who cared? You see, it's incredulous to think that anybody could have made up this story and employed the use of women to further the testimony of the empty tomb. Fourthly, the explanation of the empty tomb in terms of the fake death theory, that maybe perhaps Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross, perhaps he was just wounded uh, exhausted, fell asleep, and later came to in the tomb and let himself out is physically implausible. People, and I'm going to say this over and over again, people did not survive crucifixion, right? The Roman soldiers, and that was a Roman form of execution, they were very experienced at what they were doing, were charged to make sure that the three criminals that day were dead 
by the end of their period of suffering. It also would have required that Jesus would have had to have revived in his tomb after being beaten and smote and struck and shamed and had thorns put upon himself and then would have been dragging that cross uh, beam out to Golgotha, spikes driven into his ankles, into his hands. And then we could go into a whole physiological argument about what happens to the human body on a cross, but eventually having a sword thrust into his side, touching the, the heart area of his body, no way that he could have survived. He was taken down only when the Romans were assured that he was actually dead. And then if he had been revived in the tomb, you're telling me he could have gotten up off that shelf, walked over to the door, this 1,200-pound rock, and somehow rolled it aside? That would have been impossible. Then, on top of that, he would have had to have left all of his followers, and then he would have gone and lived where? in some East Roman province and never seen anybody in his following again, because that's their testimony. They went out and preached all around the world, these disciples did. But nobody, after the ascension of Christ, 40 days after the resurrection, ever saw Jesus again, right? Lastly, the explanation that somebody removed Jesus' body from the tomb is also not very likely. The Jewish authorities had not taken the body. They would have produced it if they could. This would have put a complete end to the, as they thought of it, the myth of the Christian religion. This would mean, the same, the, this would mean that the same chicken disciples who had deserted Christ during his trial and avoided his crucifixion at Golgotha on Friday, with the exception of the beloved disciple John, suddenly found the courage to take action and attack or deceive uh, the guards and break the official seal, thus revealing that they were still in town. You know, now, it doesn't take long. These, this 12, even after seeing Christ, they're going to go to Galilee, right? Yeah, Jesus commanded them to go there, but they're not up there starting the mission again. They're really like a bunch of hung dog followers. They think this is over. Like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, this, this whole venture is done, it's completed. As far as the disciples were concerned, the crucifixion had been a catastrophe. Nobody, nobody was looking for it to happen what happened. No one stole that Bible or that body. So as gospel historian Edward Schnabel writes, granting that Jesus died, granting that the tomb was empty without anybody having removed Jesus' body, granting that the devout Jews would not have invented a story of a man who died and rose from the dead, Jesus must have risen from the dead. The tradition can be traced back to within two or three years of these events. In other words, we have copies of people's sermons, we have notations, we have uh, the story of how these apostles and many others gave testimony to the fact that Jesus not only was not in that tomb, but that he was actually present that he spoke to people, that he appeared. And if that's the case, if it happened that close to the actual events, that means that when these were published in what we now call the Bible in the New Testament, then people could have verified the truth or falsity of these accounts. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. So why, for all that we love, 
do we have a cross in the front of our church? That's the Friday story. We're now on Sunday, and the tomb is empty. Why don't we have people having uh, tattoos of a rolled rock with an empty hole where the tomb is, saying, He is risen. Well, why aren't there t-shirts and, and buildings, you know, like a spire that has like a little open hole up on top? That's, that's the tomb. It's empty. We seem to glorify the cross. It's the saddest point in human history because God died on it. Well, I'm going to just argue this morning that the cross has to be linked with the resurrection. They go together. We must not hurry so quickly that the empty tomb that we don't fully ponder the inclusive events of the cross. Theologically, we have to bring the cross with us when we come to the resurrection. Paul, the apostle, gives prominent place to the empty tomb, but in 1 Corinthians he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. He doesn't say, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ in him resurrected. Now that just seems weird. I mean, resurrection, that's the thing that we all hinge our faith on. But Paul is saying, no, the point of Christianity is this. Jesus came and died for our sins. In one of Jesus' appearances, he shows his nail scars to the twelve. He's in that room and Thomas now is back, and he's doubting whether this thing that he's seeing is really the Savior, is really the man that he had known from Galilee. And Jesus holds out his hands, his wrists probably, and there's a slit hole where that spike had gone. He says, Thomas, stick your fingers in there. I'll show you that I'm that same man. I was crucified. You see, the crucifixion is Jesus' bona fides in a sense. It's his identity marker. He is the risen Lord as the crucified Messiah. The preaching of Jesus' resurrection did not supersede Jesus' crucifixion, as if the latter was merely a stage in the story of Jesus, a transitional event that Jesus left behind. And because of that, we neither can leave that story behind when we preach, when we teach, when we make symbols of Christianity. The cross must play a prominent role there. Rather, the early church spoke about Jesus' death and resurrection as events that together establishes Jesus' identity. As it says in the book of Acts chapter 3, as the righteous one who is the author of life. So when we combine crucifixion and resurrection... And we see them as two sides of demonstrating the power of God. He willfully went to the cross. He took yours and my sins upon himself and was willing to die for us. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead through the power of his Holy Spirit and brought him to bear upon us. One couldn't happen without the other. What's the combination mean for Jesus' identities? First of all, it shows us that Jesus can heal people. He has that strength. He has that power. And I don't mean just physically, I mean spiritually. Secondly, his mission of granting relief from sin and bestowing the Holy Spirit happened after this resurrection. Jesus is the one through whom God grants salvation. If you come to church this morning, you're saying, I want to know more about Christ. I want to do something with my life. If you're listening and you're saying, I need to have a relationship with this Jesus, then embrace both the cross and the resurrection. 
It is who Jesus is. Jesus, the divine leader and savior, it shows that he can receive your repentance and forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah, the Son of Man, who today sits at the right hand of God. We don't expect, expect to see him walking up and down this aisle here, right? When we talk about the fact that Jesus is in our hearts, what we're really saying is that when we become believers, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit into us. He resides within us, representing Christ to us. But right now, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. And let me say this, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you have no trouble believing that Jesus is someday going to return. He is going to return in authority, with power, and he is going to reestablish the world he wants to be. Paul said that through one man, sin entered into the world. He's referencing Adam in the book of Genesis. But then through the second Adam in the New Testament, that is Jesus, life entered this world. And the way that Jesus is going to establish it for a period of time, he's allowing that gospel message to come out to all of us. No matter what your race, what your gender, what, what your life background is, that message of salvation is available. But that door is going to close eventually. And Jesus is going to return, and when he does so, the world will be reset and established the way that God intended for it to be in the beginning without sin, without sorrow, right? So you're either going to be on his side or against him. Peter and the 12 begin to preach almost immediately after the resurrection. They're appearing on the temple steps, and Peter is preaching a great sermon, accounting all of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills those prophecies and those laws. Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, gives testimony to the fact as the stones are hitting his head and he's slowly slipping into death, he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, referencing Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. That is our testimony. When you as a Christian go into the hospital, when you're facing death, when you have something that's happening to you that you didn't expect, we don't face death, Paul says, the way that we would have beforehand. Oh, how many testimonies are written about the fact that people who are dying see Jesus sometimes just for an instance before they go into that life. This is not the end of life. We have this cross before us this morning. Yeah, sure, it's a symbol of death, but to us as believers, it now means life. It is life. And Jesus is resurrected, and so can you be as well, right? That is our hope. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, and we're going to follow. So as we say all through the Easter celebration, I'm going to agree with the disciples and with the women, I've seen the Lord and he is risen.